So I wanted to begin this sermon by looking at this passage. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And Paul likely asked this question in verse 1 because there were people actually saying it. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? That's the question he asks. He likely asked it because there were people actually saying it. They were saying, let us continue in sin so that grace abounds even more to us. Remember, Paul just spent the last several chapters showing that we are saved by grace, saved by the grace of God. He just stated in chapter 5, verse 20, look at that. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. What he's saying is is that the law reveals sin to man. It shows man his sin and how sin is practiced by men everywhere. It abounds. It abounds. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Amen? Grace can defeat sin and a man can be set free. As Paul goes on to say in verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So this is a good point for Paul to transition from how we are accepted of God to talk about how a Christian is supposed to live as a child of God. He will spend the next three chapters addressing this. We will not go through all three chapters, obviously, just these seven verses. And he begins here in chapter 6, verse 1, by addressing the objection. An objection that either Paul raised himself, or which many scholars believe people were actually saying. So let us continue in sin that grace may abound. And Paul responds in exclamation, Certainly not. Certainly not. Verse 2, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Paul then uses the imagery of baptism to make his point. He states in verses 3 and 4, Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. When we go down into the water, it demonstrates the death of the old man. And it reminds us that in Christ's death, sin was dealt with. And when we come up out of the water, we are to walk in newness of life, not continue in sin. As Paul goes on to say in verses 5 and 6, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. The old man is crucified, and we are free. Amen. We are no longer slaves of sin. As Paul concludes in verse 7, For he who has died has been freed from sin. 
God does not set us free or at liberty from sin for us to go around sinning, as some were suggesting. He does not liberate us from sin to employ his grace as a license for sin. As he says in verse 12 here of chapter 6, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. As he says there in verse 14, quote, For sin shall not have dominion over you, unquote. And as he says here in verse 17, quote, You were, past tense, slaves of sin. That's what you were before you came to Christ. Unquote. As he says in verse 18, quote, having been, past tense, set free from sin, you became, present tense, slaves of righteousness. Unquote. And as he says in verse 20, quote, you were, past tense, slaves of sin. Unquote. You think Paul's trying to drive home a point here? And he says in verse 22, quote, But now, present tense, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness. In the end, everlasting life. The Lord does not set us free. He does not set us at liberty for us to go around sinning. He does not give us liberty from sin to employ it as a license for sin. Now, when Christ sets us free, it does not mean we never sin. What it means is that sin no longer has dominion over us. It no longer dominates us. We do not practice sin. Rather, we are given to a life of righteousness and holiness as his people. Amen. Look at Titus chapter 2, if you would. And I want to read verses 11 and 12. The book of Titus. Chapter 2, and we'll look at verses 11 and 12, and look what it says about the grace of God. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Amen? Look what his grace teaches us. God does not set us free so we can use our liberty as a license to sin. He does not set us free from sin to use it as a license for sin. And listen to me now. Listen to me now. He does not set us free so we can do whatever we want to do. He sets us free so we can do what we ought to do. And that covers the individual regarding liberty or license in the title of my sermon. Now let me cover the nation. In the book of Proverbs, chapter 14, verse 34, the scripture states, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Righteousness exalts a nation. Righteousness exalts it. And sin is a reproach to any people. And America's founders understood this. 
America's founders understood that liberty is not a license. America's founders understood how important good morals were to maintain liberty, to maintain freedom, to maintain the republic. Because that is what America is. It is a republic. It is not a democracy. That's what it was founded to be, a republic. William Blackstone was the most cited legal scholar by America's founders, and like Blackstone and the men of that time, the framers of the Constitution and the First Amendment, because I'm going to be talking to you about the First Amendment here, the framers of the Constitution and the First Amendment held that the word, quote, unquote, freedom, or, quote, unquote, liberty, was a term of distinction to be contrasted with, quote, unquote, license or the abuse of liberty. That's what they held to. And you can see that overwhelmingly. I just received this book, Vindicating the Founders. Haven't read it yet. Usually never show people a book I haven't read yet, but it comes highly recommended. And from my reading of the founders over and over again, this is huge in their writings. The importance of Christianity and the importance of morality and virtue. Thomas Jefferson, while writing about how improving the morals of the people as being one of the primary purposes of education, stated that education should, quote, enlarge their minds, cultivate their morals, and instill into them the precepts of virtue and order. He said that regarding education. Does this not sound wholly opposite of what the schools now do in our day? What Jefferson just stated there? Could you imagine some school superintendent stating such things in our day? Not on your life. John Adams stated, quote, Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other, unquote. This was the thinking of America's founders. They understood that a free nation, they understood that liberty demanded morality. They all spoke this way. They understood that liberty used as license would end in the ruin of a nation, just as it ends in the ruin of an individual. Liberty used for license destroys individuals, it destroys nations. George Washington stated, quote, Of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. In vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism who should labor to subvert these great pillars of human happiness, these firmest props of the duties of men and citizens. The mere politician, equally with the pious man, ought to respect and to cherish them. He's talking about religion and morality, cherishing them. That they're the pillars of human happiness, the pillar of good government. He ends by saying, a volume could not trace all their connections with private and public felicity. Again, the need for a free people to be a moral people. And notice, Washington makes it clear that private life impacts public life. That was a no-brainer when I was young, young people. Everyone knew that your private life was a reflection of how you would be in your public life. That wasn't even up for discussion. And during my lifetime as a young man, they attacked that premise. 
so they could more readily put in debased men into positions of authority who would bring their ill morals and their lack of virtue into public office. So notice Washington makes the connection between private life and public life. And notice Washington says here, he says, quote, In vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism who should subvert to these great pillars, who should labor to subvert these great pillars, the great pillars being religion and morality, of human happiness, these firmest props of the duties of men and citizens. And yet that is exactly what the government of our day does. They subvert morality. They subvert Christianity within our nation. And they've been doing it for decades. The government in America has done this in a host of ways, including legalizing divorce for any reason and no reason at all, legalizing the murder of the preborn, decriminalizing adultery, decriminalizing sodomy, legalizing sodomite marriage. These are all designed to weaken the family because as every good status knows, in order to strengthen the state, you have to weaken the family. It has been done by design by our government and it's gone on for decades. I've watched it in my 60 years. One way it has been done is through the Supreme Court redefining the First Amendment. As you know, the federal judiciary and the Supreme Court have been the paramount dispensers of immorality and injustice in this nation. They have rewritten the Constitution via their issued court opinions because all the other branches of government have submitted themselves to these lawless oligarchs. The Supreme Court justices themselves brag of this, and their hubris knows no limits. Justice Charles Evan Hughes stated in 1907, Supreme Court Justice, we are under a constitution, but the constitution is whatever the Supreme Court says it is. That's arrogance. They view their power to be all-encompassing, that all other branches of government must bow down to them, that all people must bow down to them, and it's the Christian person who can check them in their thinking in that regard. Our founders did not establish any such oligarchy. They established a federalism, multiple levels of government, multiple branches on each level, so if any branch or branches began to play the tyrant, another branch or branches would check that branch, interpose and stop their evil. Justice Harlan Stone stated in 1936, another Supreme Court justice, he said, quote, the only check upon our own exercise of power is our own self-restraint, unquote. That's the arrogance these men have, because everyone bows down to them. Richard Posner, a federal judge appointed by Reagan, said in 2015, he said, it's funny to talk about the oath judges take to uphold the Constitution since the Supreme Court has transformed the Constitution in its decisions. The oath is not really to the original Constitution or to the Constitution as amended. It is to some body of law created by the Supreme Court. You can forget about the oath. That is not of significance, unquote. He wasn't saying that like that's wrong. He was bragging about that's how it is. 
those of us in the federal judiciary rule you all. We decide what law is. They actually think they create law. The judiciary was never designed to create law. The judiciary was merely designed to deal with cases of law. The legislature creates law. The legislature writes law. So yes, the Supreme Court is a tyrant, and the Supreme Court has attacked, undermined, and dismembered our Constitution, and they redefined the First Amendment from what America's founders intended and understood. Professor David Lowenthal published a book documenting all this back in 1997 entitled No Liberty for License, The Forgotten Logic of the First Amendment. Lowenthal documents what the founders understood through their own writings, what the First Amendment meant, and what it has been redefined to mean by the Supreme Court. It's a worthy read, and I encourage all of you to read it. You will learn a massive amount of history you know nothing about. In his work, Professor Lowenthal shows how in the 1920s and 1930s, the Supreme Court changed the meaning of the First Amendment to mean that any socialist or communist that wants to put forth thinking to attack and destroy the republic, talking about America, was free to do so. That it was protected speech, and it wasn't prior to that. The framers did not intend, nor did they believe, that the First Amendment was meant to protect the seditious writing or propagating of ideas and the building of organizations that wanted to destroy Republican government here in America. To those of us who've been trained and entrenched to believe free speech means any speech, that sounds shocking, doesn't it? Because that's what we've all been taught. Free speech means any speech. That was not what the founders had in mind, nor was it the intent of the First Amendment in any way, shape, or form. We know that from their writings, and we know that from court cases for 150 years after the Constitution was written. So to those of us who have been trained and entrenched to believe free speech means any speech, that all seems shocking. But do some study, see what has been changed and what has been lost You must understand history to know where you are presently. That's why they want all the young people, well, at this point, most of the adults too, to be dumb. Because if you don't know history, if you don't know how to think clearly, if you don't embrace the objective truth of God's law word, if you don't understand what's gone on prior to you being birthed, you don't know where you're at. Do you understand that? You must read history. It's important to do. So Dr. Lowenthal's book addresses that, but it also demonstrates in his book, and it's what I want to address, is how the Supreme Court also changed the meaning of the First Amendment by attacking obscenity laws through their issued court opinions. And that's what they are, opinions. They are not the law of the land. That's a lie that's taught in the schools, in the media, by government officials, by pro-life, pro-family groups. It's all a lie. They are opinions. They are not the law of the land. Dr. Lowenthal shows, in 1957, 
Roth versus United States was the first swipe at obscenity laws. In 1966, nine years later, the Supreme Court weakened obscenity laws further in the memoirs of a woman of pleasure versus Massachusetts Supreme Court case. The Supreme Court cleared an 18th century pornographic classic named Fanny Hill from the charge of obscenity under Massachusetts law. This was a huge shift. Supreme Court Justice William O. Douglas wrote in his concurring opinion with the court, quote, the First Amendment, written in terms that are absolute, deprives the states of any power to pass on the value, the propriety, or the morality of a particular expression, unquote. Did you capture that? I repeat it to you. The First Amendment, written in terms that are absolute, deprives the states of any power to pass on the value, the propriety, or the morality of a particular expression, unquote. What Justice O'Douglas seems to forget is that the First Amendment was directed at Congress and the federal government, not the states. And you should have picked up on that immediately when I read that quote to you from O'Douglas. The states are not deprived of this power, except through the rewriting of the Constitution via the Supreme Court's issued court opinion and the state magistrate's subservience to such evil, their accommodation to such evil. The states have the power regarding obscenity laws, free from federal judicial interference James Madison, the architect of the U.S. Constitution, stated, quote, the powers delegated by the proposed Constitution to the federal government are few and defined. Those which are to remain in the state governments are numerous and indefinite, unquote. Obscenity laws are one of those numerous and indefinite things The states never ceded such matters to the federal government. Read the Constitution. They never did. The Tenth Amendment to the Constitution states, quote, the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, and obscenity laws were not delegated to the federal government. And the Tenth Amendment goes on and says, nor prohibited by it to the states... And obscenity laws are not prohibited to the states. And the Tenth Amendment concludes, are reserved to the states, respectively, or to the people. This is huge stuff. When I read O'Douglas's quote, you should immediately saw his attack on the sovereignty of the states. That they have no power to pass on the value, the propriety, or the morality of a particular expression. That is a lie that the federal beast has been feeding the nation. O'Douglas and the Supreme Court attack the sovereignty of the states and then impose evil upon their people, giving the force of law to wicked men. O'Douglas and the other justices had no problem trampling the long-standing unbroken tradition of the courts upholding obscenity laws. They had been doing that forever, upholding these laws I want to read to you just a little bit, because I love some of the things 
Professor Lowenthal has to say, this is the book, No Liberty for License. It was such a big seller that you can get it for three bucks, okay? You know, reading is like going to YouTube. You want to see what's gone viral? Decadent, smut, filth, low thought. Anything intelligent? Anything dealing with good thought, morality, virtue? Yeah, 2,000 views. Scum, smut, entertainment, dopey, debauchery, millions of views. I always laugh when a Christian sends me something and he said, help make this go viral. <laughs> it's like, I don't know what fantasy land you're living in. <laughs> but this isn't going viral. <laughs> so doesn't fit for what Americans like to feed on. Here's what he said, bear with me, and I always try to inflect my voice when I read from a book to make it more interesting for you. But I just thought what he had to say here was powerful. This book was written, by the way, in 1997. Here's what he says. He's talking about the destruction of obscenity laws. That's what he's talking about. How in the 1940s, certain intellectuals began to howl to free the sexual appetite while they mocked Christian mores as Puritanism and Victorianism. And here's what he states about that. He says, by 1957, the Supreme Court had taken a modest, though decisive, step toward joining this movement. Those who wanted to free the sexual appetite. It was done through academia. Most filthy things brought upon this country start at the academic circles and work their way into society. By 1966, it had practically foreclosed the possibility of prosecutions for obscenity, talking about the case I just told you about. Memoirs of a Woman of Pleasure versus Massachusetts. In 1973... While in principle drawing back from this extreme, it also retreated further in practice by allowing only pornography to be legally punishable as obscenity. That was the Miller versus California case, which I've talked about from this pulpit in the past. Overwhelmingly majority appointed Republican Supreme Court justices. For that case, it opened the floodgates for porn in our nation. Suddenly, by these court opinions, suddenly every appeal to lust short of pornography was free to appear in the media. And so, of course, it did. The last medium to fall was television, and even that previously sacred zone known as family viewing time was by the mid-1970s subject to the inroads of a vulgar hedonism. And I'm old enough to remember that. The battles that went on there about the family hour. <laughs> you know, it's, it's the evening hours from like 6 to 9. There should be no real debased stuff. They even did away with that. Began to bring in debased stuff. So far as the situation degenerated that today, while many claim constitutionality for pornography itself, few older liberals seem willing to defend the constitutional tradition against them. What understanding of human life is propagated through the media? The incessant artificial stimulation that fills our world is a mixture of the childish, the sleazy, 
the frivolous, and the brutal, with a pervasive concentration on sex that makes its immoral and illegal use attractive, or at least no longer shameful, and its moral and legal use unattractive. The result is a steady erosion of old values and laws. The government changes laws to corrupt the morals of the people. This is seen throughout the history of the governments of men. He says the result is a steady erosion of old values and laws. He goes on to say, in this obsessive portrayal of sex, we find only a shallow animal sensuality that strips sex of its connection with admiral traits of intellect, character, even passion, and hence from lasting love and marriage. Our outlook has become that of the adolescent, who never grows up and never thinks of sex as a husband, parent, citizen, or statesman does, thus freeing it from any sense of responsibility. The old theme of seduction has practically disappeared since the woman in this new model is more likely to surrender her virtue voluntarily and quickly than have it beguiled from her. Rape as a theme is explicitly taken up much more frequently in the media than has ever been and perhaps remains the only evil. As a general matter, sexual restraint is treated as antiquated repression inconsistent with our nature and sexual intercourse of of almost the most casual kind as never to be forborne. Nothing more in this regard is expected of women than of men, of adults, than of adolescents, of community leaders, than of criminals and 'er ne'er-do-wells, all have license to indulge unrestrained appetites. All have license to indulge unrestrained appetites. E. Michael Jones talks about this matter of license for sexual immorality as given to people by governments. And in his book, Libido Dominandi, Sexual Liberation and Political Control, which everyone should read, at least the first 120 pages of. Libido Dominandi, Sexual Liberation and Political Control. He exposes the influence governments have in corrupting the morals of the people. He exhaustively documents how governments have been promoting a sexual licentiousness through law since the French Revolution era. He reveals that governments have a vested interest in legalizing sexual licentiousness because governments have learned that a more sexually licentious people makes for a more easily controlled people politically. Jones states, quote, A man has as many masters as he has vices. By promoting vice, the regime promotes slavery, which can be fashioned into a form of political control. The political control includes a lack of interest in politics. A people consumed with their next quest to gratify themselves sexually is a people less interested in what the government is doing in its public policy making. The people have no interest in freedom or liberty. Not true freedom, not true liberty. They have no interest in it. In fact, the people actually redefine freedom and liberty in their minds. The only freedom and liberty they are interested in is that their particular brand of sexual license is legal and not punished by the state. That is their interest. 
And this has all been done by design, by the state, via their laws, policies, and court opinions. I've lived 60 years now, and what I've seen the government do, and from what I have read as to what took place before I was born, is that the government gives credence to the most debased men among us and provide them with the force of law so they are free to imbibe upon their particular form of sin. That's what they do. I've watched it in my lifetime. They use the hue and cry of intellectuals within the academic world. And governments do this all the time when they want to change policy. They give a place of prominence in the universities to the professors who are the biggest dogs and swine on the planet. And they even stampede the young into believing their filthy ideas to help foment getting everything changed. I've watched it. The whole thing of getting mom out of the home, that was all engineered by big government people. They put feminist professors in top places during the 60s within the universities to sell it as freedom and equality to all the dopes who are stupid enough to buy it. And it's been a horrendous thing from this, for this country ever since. Devastating results on this country ever since. It was done by design. They get them prominence within the media. So everybody's left believing, wow, everybody's believing that now? They're not. But it gives the impression that everyone is. And then the government, bam, puts through a new court opinion, a new law, a new policy, which corrupts the morals of the people. And I've watched this whole decadence cycle my whole life go downward. And it's an evil that needs to be stopped. They use the you and cry of intellectuals within the academic world to base men who want to use government to justify their sin and who want to ensure they can imbibe on their sin without threat of civil consequence, without the threat of sanctions from the state. When governments make law, policy, or court opinion to upend the morals of individuals with the design to weaken family government, they always give license to the most debased men among us to accomplish it. You can follow it like in the divorce laws. Very few people getting divorced, but there were people getting divorced. And then they use that small group of people to change the laws and policies in our nations regarding divorce to make divorce easy for everyone and watch divorce skyrocket after that. They've used the federal judiciary, you know, in the decriminalization of sodomy. They've used it in the legalization of the slaughter of the preborn. They've used it in the legalization of sodomite marriage. All designed to corrupt the morals of the people. Government using raw judicial power to corrupt the morals of the people. It is an evil, and it needs to be exposed and spoken of. The state does this by design because every good statist knows that in order to strengthen the state, you must weaken the family. They empower and debase the individual and place the individual at odds with the family. That's what they do. They empower and debase the individual 
and place the individual at odds with the family. I point this out to my kids all the time. You notice how they're building condominiums everywhere? Not houses as much anymore. This is where a childless society, people aren't marrying. There's fewer divorces now than there were 20 years ago. You know why? Because people aren't marrying anymore. <laughs> There's living in sin. Evil. This cycles downward over the decades. This is due in part because the sinful nature of man likes license from the state. That's why things cycle downward. The nature of man is he's wicked and in need of a savior, namely Jesus Christ. So this is due in part because the sinful nature of man likes license from the state. But understand, this is done by design by the state. By our own government in our day, that has shown a propensity to encourage sin, particularly in the area of sexuality. They have given license to liberty, and this has actually been done by design through their laws, policies, and court opinions. And the truth is, often the most debased men are at the power levers of government itself. Often the most debased men are at the power levers of government itself. Take William O. Douglas, for example. The Supreme Court Justice I talked about earlier with his little concurrent opinion in um, Memoirs of the Woman of Pleasure versus Massachusetts case. Take him, for example. By the way, on that Fanny Hill case, that Massachusetts case, don't read Fanny Hill. But what you should read is this. You should read... Supreme Court Justice Tom Clark's dissent on that 1966 case of the Memoirs of Woman of Pleasure versus Massachusetts. Read Clark's dissenting opinion because he gives a summary of what it is that's in that work from 1754, which was outlawed all the way up until 1966. And then the Supreme Court changed it and attacked the obscenity laws. Justice Douglas, or since it's Irish week, O'Douglas. Justice O'Douglas was married four times. That'll tell you something about a man's morality. He was divorced three times because he was committing adultery on his wife every time. He was going through woman after woman after woman. Marry her, commit adultery on her, divorce her. Marry another woman, commit adultery on her, divorce her. After his second divorce at age 64, he married a 23-year-old woman. Then he committed adultery on her, and at age 68, 23 not being young enough, he married a 22-year-old woman. It tells us what we need to know about this man's morality. And of course, in 1973, he voted in favor of Roe v. Wade so the preborn could be butchered. He was a rat of a man. As with most all men, his personal life influenced his public life. Contrast him with Jefferson and Washington and what they wrote. These lawless men in government over the last hundred years have been busy constructing what Lowenthal says, quote, is the freedom to destroy freedom. Well said. The freedom to destroy freedom. 
And that is what Biden and the Democrats are busy doing even now. Republicans aid and abet them all along the way. Biden and the Democrats will pass all kinds of evil. The Republicans will regain power and they'll solidify all the evil. They won't stop the evil. They'll solidify it, fund it, sustain it. I've watched it all my life. That's what they do. And it all devolves downward. I've watched it all my life devolve downward. The immorality in this nation is shocking. And just when you think they've hit the bottom, no, man has no bottom. He has no bottom. He comes up with some new degradation, some new filth, some new low. And that's why God's judgment is a mercy on rebellious men and rebellious nations. Biden and the Democrats are busy doing what the Democrats and Republicans have been doing for decades. They're attacking the other three great governments. There's three great governments God has established. Family government, church government, and civil government. They're all meant to produce within the individual the fourth great government called self-government. We have a civil government in this nation for decades which is attacking family government, church government, and self-government. So you must be vigilant in all three. You must guard and protect, put up barriers, and fight against them every which way you can. Every which way you can. And that's what I've tried to do throughout my life in very practical ways regarding even government documents, regarding how I govern my home, helping build businesses, bringing the family together, trying to bring the economy, the locus of the economy, into the family rather than in the hands of the state as much as possible. All these things matter. Spending time with your wife, spending time with your children, building in their lives massively important. One of the greatest ruins in America is the indifference of American men towards their own children. It's an evil thing that I've watched throughout my life. It's a despicable thing that me and my wife here, both men and women, mothers and fathers, say in their old age. Ah, my grandkids are coming over again. I had to put up with my grandkids for two hours last week. Are you kidding me? I thought about bringing him over to my house, tying him to a chair, and just making him sit there for a week and see how many of my grandchildren come through. <laughs> so, I'll break you of your bad habit. <laughs> you know? By the time we're done with you, eight hours will seem wonderful <laughs> with your grandchildren. You know? It's like, uh. There is no liberty for license. And my heart cries out when I say that. There is no liberty for license. You cannot give license to liberty and maintain it. Not in your individual life and not in the life of a nation. As the scripture declares, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. May Christ be praised. Let's stand up and we'll close in a word of prayer.
praise you, O God. Praise you, O God. Lord, we thank and we praise you for this time that we've had to talk about this important matter. I ask, O Lord, that you would use it for good in the hearts and minds of all the listeners, that they would understand your ways and your thoughts better because of our time here today, talking about Holy Writ, talking about the history of our nation, talking about the nature of man. Lord, I just ask and pray that each one here would have a hunger to read your word, to understand your ways and your thoughts, that they would have a hunger, O God, to read history, to understand what's been done so they might know where they are. Lord, I just ask and pray that you put a fire within each one to be faithful soldiers of yours in the earth, not squandering their days in selfish and foolish ambition, but before you, seeking you, knowing how best to be used by you in the earth with the days that you've allotted them. Lord, I pray and ask that the young amongst us do better than we did as older people in using their time more wisely than we did. Lord, that they would be bold, valiant for you, that they would do the reading and the study that's necessary to give good defense, good apologetic to the faith and to righteousness. Lord, we give thanks and praise to you for your goodness to us, that you've redeemed us, not with corruptible things like we even sang about, like silver and gold, but with your own precious blood that we might be your people, the sheep of your pasture. And Lord, we just ask and pray that you would be glorified through our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. You could be seated.